Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Let's face it, in today's uncertain times, simple conversations about your health can have powerful results. There's something you are likely eating every day. It can negatively affect your waistline, complexion, and overall health. On the Dr. Gundry Podcast, Stephen Gundry, a renowned cardiothoracic surgeon and New York Times best-selling author, cuts through the BS to help you make better health choices. You have the ability to heal yourself if you give yourself the right ingredients to do it with. Dr. Gundry has spent the last 20 years empowering people around the world to help reverse and prevent some of our most serious ailments through the power of diet and lifestyle changes. You will change 90% of you. You will be a brand new you. Tune in to the Dr. Gundry Podcast to start your health journey. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Because I'm Dr. Gundry, and I'm always looking out for you. Have you ever wonder why some people get really sick and others only have mild illnesses? Well, part of the answer may be related to your gut health. A study published this year suggests that people with leaky gut or other gut symptoms may be at higher risk of certain illnesses. In fact, some of the immunity is clearly related to the bacterial flora of your gut. Why does this matter? Well, even if you do everything right, you will still be exposed to viruses and bacteria. It's not, you can't avoid that. And the severity of your illness could be affected by your gut health. A healthy diet, proper exercise, of course, sleep, vitamin C, zinc, other minerals may help. But there's also something you can add to your morning routine that will completely transform your immunity and protect you. And it tastes amazing. This is called Leaky Gut Guardian. Now, you might be thinking, do I even have a leaky gut? But studies show that nearly everyone has some mild form of this. And even if you don't, this product does more than just help with this one condition. Leaky Gut Guardian is the only formula that can repair compromised gut lining, help rebuild it with the right probiotics and prebiotics, and activate the four critical pathways for improved immunity. It eliminates bad bacteria, feeds the good bacteria, and gives you the immunity you need to hopefully fight off viruses. Comes in two flavors, chocolate carnivore and vegetarian vanilla. Simply start your morning by adding one scoop of it to your favorite beverage, coffee, smoothie, or even just a simple glass of water. It mixes well, it is seriously delicious, and you'll be helping repair your gut and improve your immunity with powerful prebiotics and probiotics. Power up your immunities today and try Leaky Gut Guardian risk-free by visiting buyoptimizers.com. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S, buyoptimizers.com slash Drew, and then use Dr. Drew to receive 10% off any order. You have a 365-day money-back guarantee. That is buyoptimizers.com slash Drew. everybody. Welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. I appreciate you all being here. We appreciate, of course, supporting the people that support the program and keep the wind in the sails of the Corolla pirate ship. Uh, don't forget, after dark, you can find it at drdrew.com. And, of course, the streaming show we're doing every day. It's usually around 3 o'clock. You can get that at drdrew.com. And, uh, of course, those of you that follow this one, we appreciate it. My guest today is somebody I'm very excited about. It's Dr. Ginger Campbell. She has the podcast, one of my very, very, very favorite, favorite podcasts. So you see me indulging myself on this podcast with my favorite podcasters. Her podcast is Brain Science with Ginger Campbell. Book is Are You Sure? The Unconscious Origins of Certainty. Uh, let's see, hit number one in neuroscience on Amazon in June. Her website is Virginia Campbell, C-A-M-P-B-E-L-L-M-D, VirginiaCampbellMD.com. Podcast website is brainsciencepodcast.com, and the Twitter handle is at Doc Artemis, A-R-T-E-M-I-S. And there's much more to say. 
Uh, Ginger was a emergency medicine doctor and then retrained in palliative care. But um, I have so much more I want to talk to you about, but I appreciate you being here. Well, thanks for having me. And I didn't realize you were a palliative specialist. That immediately wanted me to, I, I, it sort of made me think I wanted to talk to you about that topic. Uh, in addition to the neuroscience uh, stuff that you've been engaged in, in in your podcast, which I am deeply interested in. It was something, neuroscience was in its absolute infancy was in it when I was in college, but I got very, very, very attached to it. And it sort of was my basic, biochemistry and neuroscience were sort of my strongest mm-hmm. trainings. And I, all the way through, uh, through medical school and residency, I, I, I maintained an interest in it. And then I ended up working in a psychiatric hospital for 30 years. So I wow. saw a lot of the stuff writ large and uh, kept up on the, the neuroscience and, and how that has changed over that time, which it has changed quite a bit. Um, but just before, indulge me for a second, because I really feel like in the in the aftermath or in the midst of this COVID thing, one of the things I keep saying is, We've got to start talking about end of life. I mean, we are just not preparing people. I, I, I get up public and I go, hey, everybody, I say this to my family, I don't ever want to be in a nursing home. I don't ever put, if I'm so neurologically impaired or I'm so physically debilitated that I need institutional care, get me a palliative specialist. I'm staying home. Let's let this ride. And, and, and the extreme attention to extending life in the nursing facility is sort of, I don't know if the people that are in there want that, right? Right. What do you make of all this? Well, you know, my focus right now is on the situation in the hospital because I work at the VA Mm. and it's, in fact, I got my uh, first Pfizer vaccine today. Oh, congratulations. I'm so jealous. I am so jealous. I'm I'm trying to get it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but uh, so anyhow, that that's that's. Uh, I have to admit, it was a little scary, but I mean, I'm a I'm a big fan of vaccines, mm-hmm. but you know, um, and I think the science behind this one is really good. I agree. Uh, but anyhow, um, and, and by the way, it's different for you and I. We're sort of peer age a little bit, mm-hmm. and if you know, I'm not having rushing my kids out for it. You know what I mean? But for you right. and I, it makes sense. It makes perfect sense yeah. to get it. Absolutely. So anyhow, um, my concern is, you know, we have an increasing low number of patients with COVID at the VA hospital that I work at, and we don't have these conversations with people. Mm-hmm. Now, we are not talking to people when they're first hospitalized while they're able to make decisions or think about things, mm-hmm. right? And then they end up on a ventilator. And they still don't talk to anybody about it. I, I, I mean, don't understand. System, to me, it's, it's a system problem. When, when, I mean, when we're I, there, we're there, ready to help, and we're not being we're not being called. And and I just I find that really upsetting. Ginger, when I was a resident, and I did a lot of intensive care medicine for the first ten years of my life in practice, it was considered cruel to put an eighty year old on a ventilator. It was considered bizarre because the best you could do was six to twelve months of misery following that. It was just if they got that sick, that's they got that sick. That's the way it goes. Do the best you can. Right. And you remember before the Supreme Court cases that allowed people to be extubated, you didn't want to intubate one of those people because you knew that it meant they were going to be stuck there for the rest of their life. Tracheostomies and misery and skin yeah. breakdown and horrors. And we didn't have palliative medicine yet. And, but we seem to have lost track of all this. Now we're all, yeah. everyone's focused on putting 80-year-olds on ventilators. I can't believe it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, 
I just wish we, you know, it's a weird disease. You get to usually be sick for a week before you get really sick, yeah. which means that there's time. We should be having this conversation with every person that's diagnosed, and completely we're not. Agree. Completely agree with you. Well, I, I'm sorry that's the case. That 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 to me, that's. A, I that think is a, some hospitals are doing better, but I just know where I am. It's that, it's not happening. I, I would, Even though we have one of the oldest palliative care programs in the VA system, I, I'm certain you have an ethics committee. Please refer it to your ethics committee because this is a massive ethical problem. Really is. I, I I've many times come into stuff like this. I've, I I got to refer to the ethics committee, and I don't. And I feel bad that I didn't to this day. Some of the stuff mm-hmm. I've seen in terms of extreme interventions at end of life that are just just horrible. Yeah. Well, I'm with you. That's why I went into palliative care. I I actually do have a video on YouTube uh, for anyone who cares. Um, I talked on, to the American Humanist Association about palliative care. Um, gosh, it's been six, five or six years ago now, um, and it's on YouTube. And and what I said was, you know, death is really not the enemy. Yeah, it's suffering. It's the enemy. That's right. I mean, everyone's going to well, die. And, and I would argue, uh, <laughs> in addition to suffering, would be undignified uh, dying. I, I, yeah. I think death, death with dignity is a very important thing. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and, and what happened to me when I was giving that talk, it was in Denver, I got totally blindsided at the end by the right to die people. Mm. You know, I should have seen them coming, mm. <laughs> but I, I didn't. And, and so I was like so a little bit surprised by this, the questions I got because as a palliative care specialist, I kind of feel like if, you're wanting, if your patient wants you to end their life, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> because as a palliative care specialist, my go- job is to make people's end of life as good as possible. Right. 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 And most people, when they say they want to die prematurely, it's because they're afraid of suffering or they're afraid of losing control. They or want they, to have or control. They, or, they they go. or they are suffering. And so, they are. And, but they think that, but if we, we can usually make people not suffer. Yep. I if agree. we do the right things, that's, that's, that's the whole goal of palliative medicine is, is is to prevent suffering so um I, that's why i consider it good old-fashioned medicine i i agree i i agree listen i'm i my dad was a family practitioner i have him ringing in my head during this epidemic like i just hear him going the flu the flu 80 year olds on ventilators with the flu? what we had polio we were there's kids dying by the thousands what the flu what are you doing i just he, he'd die a second time he would die a second death if that happened. But let, let's get off that because I really I, I want to get into the neuroscience stuff. I love your okay. podcast. And, and, and I actually like, I think I like best your recaps, the ones that you do where you review stuff, you review books, you review whom you've spoken to. I, I almost don't know where to start. Let, let's kind of start with how you got interested or what your intention is with looking at neuroscience, number one. And then number two, let's kind of look at the latest stuff. Okay, uh, and I'm particularly fascinated. Just my own thing with the insula cortex, and I know you did a thing with Bud Craig. It was not that recently; it was a while ago. But right. uh, just you're going to hear me sort of pushing that stuff. But go ahead, you you tell me. So my own particular journey: I was a grad student in biomedical engineering before I went to medical school, and this was in the late '78 to '80 period. Where were you? And neuro- uh, in Alabama mm-hmm. at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. 
And so I, neuroscience was pretty primitive then, you know, the electrodes were huge. Aplesia were about the only thing you could record from, if you remember Aplesia. And cockroaches. But, we got cockroaches too. We had Aplesia and cockroaches. It, yeah. But, um, and, and lobsters I, and, the, and the, and the giant axon from the lobsters. That was exactly, thing. exactly. <laughs> you know, it's and, really funny. Um, but but I didn't really get into neuroscience at that point. I was more interested in going ahead and, and becoming a physician, and, and that's, that's what I did. And over time, in my personal um, exploring, I'm, I think I consider myself an autodidact. I'm always reading new things. Uh, I had gotten into Eastern philosophy and read lots of stuff about consciousness and finally came around to Western philosophy and discovered that there was this whole area called philosophy of mind, which is really cool because it's now intersecting with the, the modern um, neuroscience mm-hmm. discoveries. Mm-hmm. One thing I think a lot of people who aren't familiar with philosophy don't know is that if you look at it historically, things go from being philosophy to being science whenever the technology gets to a certain point. Right. We just, we, it and, was already part of philosophy. We just spun it off as something we call right. science. And that's where we are with neuroscience, especially the neuroscience of consciousness. You know, 30 years ago, it was considered a career ender if a neuroscientist wanted to try to study consciousness. And that's not true anymore. Um, so that is actually how I got interested in it. And so I started reading it and I had been reading this, you know, maybe two or three years really into neuroscience when, um, podcasting burst on the scene in iTunes in 2005. And I was like, well, I think I'd like to do a podcast, but I don't know what. And of course I did the usual record my voice, hated it thing. And finally what happened was I did a little bit for somebody else's show on Jeff Hawkins book on intelligence and i realized hey i could do neuroscience and i would never run out of material Mm -hmm. and this was 2006 which was before it got to be as hot as it is now and did you ever imagine you'd be you'd be interviewing some of the greatest neuroscientists of all time no actually at the beginning i didn't even imagine interviewing anybody to be honest but but that did happen pretty early on and I discovered I was actually pretty good at it. I think all those years I was talking to people as a physician, you know, prepared me for that. Well, um, also you're, you're, <laughs> you're clearly, you're liberally studied, as we say, you're a liberal arts person. I don't know if you were trained in that originally. Or no, I started out in, in engineering. Yeah. Which is crazy, <laughs> but you you have clearly the liberal arts mind. I, I see it operating. So. So anyway, the thing about it is my motivation is that mainstream neuroscience coverage is unfortunately horrible. I mean, every year you'll see that same old, you only use 10% of your brain. and Or the amygdala is the source of fear. Exactly, that kind of stuff. Or the limbic system, which we, you know, is totally obsolete, but they, I mean, that's still in the textbooks. Limbic is not something we talk about anymore, everybody. Yeah, so... um, so anyway, I just really wanted to put some good, accurate science out there, and I wanted to make it accessible to people of all backgrounds. Mm. And so that's that's kind of the, the the theme of my show. I try to vary the content from pretty technical to not so technical, so that the listeners who don't have science backgrounds, you know, won't just get totally, you know, discouraged. Uh, and that's that's worked really well. The show's been very successful, and then I've been very surprised by the number of students that listen to the show and people who go, oh, now I've decided to study neuroscience, and I'm like, 
oh, wow. <laughs> so the shows and then the impact on patients with mental illnesses and health problems, um, they say it helps them. That, I have to say, is the biggest surprise. The yeah. biggest surprise is the impact that it's made on people. I feel like it's made more impact on people than I've ever made in my you know, day-to-day job in patient care. And that's pretty um, mind-blowing. Yeah, I, I have sort of shared that experience with you, used, trying to use media to make a difference. It's very impactful. It can really help and can hurt, too. You have to be very, very careful. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, there's, it does not surprise me that people with mental illness would be benefited from your podcast if they are interested and sophisticated enough to really digest all this stuff because psychoeducation is a part of treatment for mental illness. It, it, learning about what their condition is, and, and you know, and there's all this data. Even even conditions like schizophrenia, there, you know, if you develop their vent, uh, dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex with CBT, they can control their symptoms a little better. You know, and, mm-hmm. and that's a kind of an educational process. Yeah, yeah. There's something empowering about understanding how your brain works. I mean, that's the bottom line. So let's get into that so, a little bit. Let's get into okay. it. Okay. Uh, I. I I will come back around to Bud stuff because I, I realized I also wanted to talk to you about consciousness. So you've talked to a number of different theorists about consciousness. Review for me your how you sort of put it all together for yourself. Okay. So for me, the first number one piece of science is that it comes from the brain. Right. It's a, it's a brain you know, it's, phenomenon. It's, it, yeah, it's a it's, brain phenomenon. So, so it's, what, it's, it's what they call Descartes' error, right? He shouldn't, <laughs> shouldn't have said, I think, therefore I am. He should have said, I think, therefore God makes matter that can develop thought, right? Yeah. yeah. So that's my number one thing is that um, is consciousness is, is a brain process. Yes. Uh, There's no separate I, substance called consciousness. No. Right. And – there's a lot of interesting ideas about, you know, the role of embodiment. I mean, certainly I think the idea of a brain in a vat makes no sense because our what our brain tells us about the world comes from our senses. And then our brain, you know, builds the world we experience. So, you know, if, if, if a brain was in a vat with no sensory information, it would, it would not be able to be conscious. So that's just basic. That's also basic science. Um, another basic principle is the fact that cognition and emotion are deeply intertwined. They cannot really be separated. Is it, is um, it, is it, because I you say that they, and, I, and I wondered yeah, but, if this was true. Is emotion a cognition? Or are they just intertwined? It's a hard thing to. Okay, a, I, I yeah. would think that I would rate that one as still debate being debated. Okay, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Lisa Feldman Barrett's writing. Oh yes. She, okay, so you know she would be on the extreme constructionist end of the spectrum, which yeah. would be saying that it is totally a cognition, and then you know the late Jacques Panksepp was on the other end. It's all coming from subcortical circuits, and it's not cognition at all. I, I feel that the truth is probably somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's going to turn out like a lot of these nature nurture questions where we usually end up with it's both. <laughs> you were talking to someone where you were, they were sort of constructing it the way we, uh, I, I, it's a hard, I have a hard time saying this, the, the way we organize sensory perceptual material. 
I, I forget who you we were talking to. It was a relatively recent one, I think. And he was talking mm-hmm. about he was he was a guy that studied the retina in his early career. And right. right. And then he was saying that we know exactly how that's constructed. And he said, I think emotions are constructed in the same way in other parts of the brain. Yeah, I, you know, I'm actually not exactly sure who you're talking about at, the, at this point. It. I think you're putting several people's I may be, I may be together, and that's okay. That's 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 synthesis. That's yeah, cool. That's I how mean, my brain works. Now, I had a colonoscopy um, yesterday, so I'm not in my normal state. So. <laughs> well, let me just allude to my book because it kind of addresses this, what you just said, because yeah. this idea does come from – one pe- person who said this is Robert Burton. He wasn't talking about emotions, but he was talking about mental sensations like agency and the feeling, what he calls the feeling of knowing. And what he argues was that those are constructed similar to the way that perception is constructed. I, I well, what does that right. mean? Think, what it means was? is who, who that what again? it means is we don't have control over it. Right. Who who was okay. that? You said that did that. Which, Robert Burton. Robert Burton. Okay. Keep going. Yeah. I mean, the the truth of the matter is that my book, Are You Sure? The Unconscious Origins of Certainty, is based on Dr. Burton's work. And he graciously gave me permission to use several interviews that I've done with him to, to create that book. So that was very gracious of him. But I picked it because I just think the fact that so much is going on unconsciously is another very important principle. We're all fascinated by consciousness, Mm -hmm. right? But the reality is that most of what our brain does is not conscious. Right. And that has a lot of implications. Um, I'm I'm looking at the things I listened to. Could it have been John Dowling? It probably, yeah, that it could have been Dowling because yeah. he definitely was a guy who I just didn't remember he said that. That's it's been a while since I talked to him. Mm. Um, he did he, he did study the retina for okay, his entire then that's career. The guy, that's, that's true. The guy I'm thinking, of, but I still maybe putting it together with somebody else. That's possible. No, but that sounds like that would be right in the sense that Dowling that was what he had spent most of his career studying. So let let me. I would like to share with you my theory, and I want you to sort of um, assess it. And and it's okay. it's a it's a relatively underdeveloped theory. It's it's gonna I'm gonna try to sort of sketch it, and that is that fundamentally it seems to me that consciousness and something we might call proto consciousness seems to emerge more in animals that are high, mammals that are highly social. Would you agree with that? Elephants, dolphins. Highly social. We go, oh, they take care of their young and they seem to have emotions about each other and they communicate and they, you know, is that? Well, I think that that is true for a certain kind of consciousness, but I actually sort of go with the school of thought that feel that argues that consciousness is much older than mammals. Okay. You know, there are writer, there are scientists now who think that even insects may be conscious. Now what they're talking about is what they call primary or sensory consciousness. They're not talking about the kind of consciousness that we have. So it's like when you, I'm sure know Antonio Damasio's um, writing, you know, he has this whole special, I can't remember what kind of consciousness he calls our consciousness, 
this would probably be closer to what he would call proto-consciousness. Yeah, he's a proto-self. But, but proto some writers call primary consciousness. It means being able to have some image of the world so you can make decisions based on your relationship to the world. And right, that's so. the sense at which um, we're learning that maybe even insects are conscious. Okay. Well, it seems, when I look um, at an amoeba, you poke at it, it seems to respond no, to the No, not an amoeba. No, okay, now. An amoeba reacts, but it can't, it doesn't have any way of representing the world. Okay. So the idea of primary consciousness is there's got to be enough nervous system to have some sort of representation of the world. Got it. Okay. So a map, okay. a map of the world, would that be an accurate way to say it? Yeah. Some kind okay. of map of the world. So, yes. Now, so, it wouldn't necessarily be as complex as what we experience, but some kind of map. And it makes sense. I mean, don't the, doesn't the fly always see you coming when you try to swat it? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah. So so I agree that's a kind of a consciousness. I think what I'm interested in though myself mm-hmm. is sort of more in the zone of I and me. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay, uh, right. In, in Subjective sort of, kind of consciousness. Yeah, sort of right. William James sense of consciousness, right? He had an right. I and a me kind of thing. And, yeah. And, and then then we get into the problem of we are for that kind of consciousness, how will we ever really figure out whether another species has it? I mean, you know, Joseph Ledoux is on the He's on the other extreme and that he says we can't say anybody else's consciousness because we can't ask them. So you see that there's a quite a spectrum of opinion. Um, but well, we use that um, self. We use these, you know, the mirror test with the mm-hmm, ink, ink mm-hmm. in the forehead thing. And, and elephants and dolphins and chimpanzees can do that, right? Right. They know that that's me in the mirror and I have something on my forehead. Right. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't tell us. Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. It, 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 you know, it does tell us, it tells us something about their, it probably, it for sure tells us a lot about their intelligence. What it tells yeah. us about their consciousness is more debatable. Fair enough. So it, it see, one of the thing, the criticisms I have of so much of the consciousness literature is that it tends to stay with one skull. And mm-hmm. I'm of the opinion that we know the self emerges in an intersubjective context. Right. And so when I do a thought experiment, I think if a, if a, you know, a child got lost in the woods at age one and came out at 13 or 15, would they have consciousness in the way that we think of consciousness? They certainly wouldn't have a very developed self. And so I, it'd be more reactive like an animal, right? It would not have this sort of sense of I'm feeling these things, I have agencies, all that subjective stuff we're so accustomed to that we associate with consciousness – and I feel like that is something that requires a second-order representation reflected back to us from another human being. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good point. I mean, you know, that sounds like a mirror of the argument about language, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the importance of language to consciousness, you know, because there are people that think that and, – and now there's lots of evidence you can be conscious without language. But there was a time when it was assumed that without language, we wouldn't be conscious. And, and that's what I imagine when I think of this person, this thought experiment that you just said, because this person in the woods by themselves with no one to interact with is also not going to learn language. Right. So that means they're not going to be able to communicate their experience to us. And so then we're back to that same bottleneck of how do we figure out what they are experiencing right i i never you know they had that movie that jody foster was in about that uh, feral child uh eve or something was it called something like that i remember i didn't see that one yeah and i i always wonder what happened to her and whether she could she learned language eventually 
and she regulated once she learned language and developed relationships and things. Again, dysregulation is part of not having mm-hmm. you know consciousness, right? Right. Um, and and uh, she—I don't know if she able was able to look back and speak about what was happening to her, mm-hmm. or if she had any memory of it or, or consciousness of it. I just don't know. So um, that's all interesting to me that that uh, we there's so many people you know struggling around and all these really kind of wild theories of consciousness is out there, including that you know sort of it's all reminds me of was it Leibniz or you know or monads we have consciousness mm-hmm. monads <laughs> now which I I strongly disagree with and yet that that's a kind of a theory that has caught caught uh, wind a little bit. Yeah, I mean, because um, I think you might refer be referring to the integrated information theory, which, you know, is considered reputable and is popular with some very highly respected neuroscientists, which is basically pantheism. Right. The <laughs> I mean, consciousness exists yeah, and everywhere. I, I, I'm, I, I don't find that I resonate with those ideas myself. I, I don't know if you've ever read anything by Michael Graziano, but – I kind of like his approach. Um, he has something called the attention, attention schema. And he basically says it fits into what you said because he says, you know, we know we're conscious because we're using the same part of our brain that tells us other people are conscious, the part of our brain that we need for social interaction. Yes. But the other thing he says is, um, you know, it feels we're naturally dualists. It feels like our mind is something non-physical because our brain has no reason to tell us what the brain is do- it's doing, right? right? So it feels like it's some magical thing happening in our head because we have no information about it. Yeah, we have no other experience of it. And, and, and right. evolutionary, our evolutionary heritage didn't need us to have anything. No, it, it has no survival benefit to know what your brain is doing. Right. <laughs> I, I heard your interview with him too, and, and I thought, and I strongly agree with him that attentionality is a key component, but both being the object of someone's attention, you know, being scrutinized mm-hmm. for mind content. I mean, that's sort of a theory of mind kind of attention, and also paying attention to in your with your own mechanisms internally mm-hmm. uh, what's going on. So let's let's keep going from there, and let's shift over to Bud Craig's theory and the lateral. Spinal thalamic track, and uh, he's. I, I read his book. Is it how we feel or how you feel? I guess it's called something like that. Yeah, uh, I think how it's do you, how, how do you feel? feel? It's you been feel? a while. Yeah. I think it's been like maybe five or six years since I talked to him. So okay, it's been a it's sorry. Been sorry a, to bring it back, but here we go. No, I just <laughs> so, I'm just apologizing in advance that I may not remember a lot of detail. Well, his his stuff was. Uh, it's it's rare that things. Uh, or sort of paradigm shifts for me, and his thinking was for me. Uh, mostly, not in so much uh, in just the information coming out of the lateral spinal thalamic tract, which I'm sure like you, when we studied neuroscience and neuroanatomy, that was a throwaway region of the brain. That was, yes, eh, you know, sensory, mm-hmm. uh, maybe some temperature and pain coming in <laughs> through that. We're not really sure what's going on. I even remember being told that there was a... Um, uh, a cerebellar component to that. That's my memory. Like there was some sort of, you know, movement in space relationship to all of it, but nothing of a relationship to feelings and consciousness, particularly right. no way. Was there any relation to that? And it is some of the newer techniques that allowed uh, Bud Craig to show that it wired into the thalamus uh, and then does go to the insula cortex. Now I've been interested in the insula for a long time because I've been aware 
that so many of my patients with addiction and with dysregulation and with chronic pain, when you look at the fMRI data on those types of patients, the insula is not functioning normally. It's firing off in all kinds of crazy ways. And when I think about Bud's construct, it starts to make some sense to me. Uh, I'll let you talk a little bit about that, and then I'll, I'll tell you tell you more what I'm thinking. Well, um, you may have to expand because, like I All said, right. I haven't thought yeah, about his sure. work he, recently. He, but as I remember it, he um, basically has um, our processing of the interoceptive information. That is the yeah. the information from the inside of our body, right. basically mapping onto the ins- insular cortex. Exactly, and, and, and he it, and he sees that as being a very important component of our of our conscious awareness of our body. Um, I, where I disagree with him is that is that he also said, has at least the last time I read it said that he felt that that meant we had a, um, certain abilities that no other animal has. And I think that's going, I think that's going too far. And the reason is that just because that piece of the brain does that in us, does not mean that another part of some another animal's brain couldn't be doing something analogous. If you look at how much we've learned about bird brains, we've learned that the cortex is not the only source of intelligence. So that's the reason why I, 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 a big, I agree with the big picture, but to say that another animal can't do this because they don't have this brain structure um, I think is 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 going too far. I think you pointed um, that out to him and but, said that the, is it birds don't have a hypothalamus <laughs> even they don't they have like is it birds that don't have a hypothalamus or something uh, I like think that? hypothalamus is a mammalian brain structure, but I don't remember for sure. Um, yeah, neuroanatomy not always my best strongest <laughs> subject. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, I could have a nightmare about medical school if you asked me to think about neuroanatomy, but. Um, but the idea, I guess, that is really important that you're trying to get at is the fact that all this interoception is very, very important yeah. uh, to how we experience the world. Leader in the CBD industry, Hemp Fusion is committed to providing high-quality, THC-free CBD oil products. So whether your New Year's resolution is gunning for a raise or an Olympic gold medal, you need to stay on top of your game. And with so many world-class professional athletes turning to Hemp Fusion, you can be sure you're getting a safe, clean product. From tinctures to topicals to capsules, they have something for everyone. And of course, you know I support CBD use and everyone's got a story with it. It's something to try, certainly discuss with your doctor, both topically or perhaps tinctures. I myself have used it for sleep occasionally, and I use the topical agents for joint aches. So to make it even easier to accomplish your New Year's resolution, Hemp Fusion is offering my listeners 20% off your purchase when you use the promo code DREW, just DREW, at checkout. Once again, that is Hemp Fusion, H-E-M-P-F-U-S-I-O-N, HempFusion.com, promo code DREW for 20% off your order for premium CBD oil products from Hemp Fusion. And I think you even said in that, that interview you did with Bud was that essentially all mental illness has f- correlates of dysfunction in the insular cortex. At least the affective component. The, exactly. So to me, the insula, so, so we all know, just to go back for people that aren't 
may be uh, familiar with brain structures, but we have a little homunculi on the surface of our brain, one for the motor and one for the sensory, where, the, where these are sort of famous strips across the top of the brain where our motor function is initiated and our sensory function sort of ends. That's the best way I can describe it, I guess. Is that about right? And the, the it's a, it's a little it's a little map of our body that's sort of a homunculi that's sort of stripped out across the top of the brain. Well, it turns out we have the same thing in our insula, except it's sort of the way Bud talks about it. It goes from anterior to posterior, with the posterior, if I remember right, uh, homunculi meaning little body sort of maps being very vague and poorly mm-hmm. outlined. And as you move forward, it gets more and more and more clearer. And I thought, wow, to me, that kind of smacks of something that I, I think I personally can kind of relate to is that some feelings are vague and some feelings are clear. And in therapy, I had to get clarity on these things. And, and, and the feelings are clearly things coming out of my body. These are, bod- you know, we talk about gut feelings and when we're hurt, mm-hmm. our chest hurts. So these are, it's actually our body that's producing these symptoms. And it's processed, I suspect, in, in the insula. Is, is that sound right? At least, you know, the thing about the insula is I don't know for sure, um, you know, you mentioned the spinothalamic tract. So let's think about the thalamus, okay? It's on the way up. The thalamus also has body maps. Oh, I didn't know that. Tell me more. I'm in. Um, Yeah. And and so it's not like it just popped from the body straight to the insula. Mm -hmm. Okay. These maps, it's the way to think about it is think about how, you know, that the retina has a retinoscopic map, right. Mm -hmm. And you know, that that map, um, you know, um, goes, um, to the inferior colliculus of the thalamus and it's still there. And then it goes to the visual cortex and it goes, it's constantly being processed, but there's always a map. So there's, there's a body map in the thalamus also. I, I always so thought of thalamus. Process, a- processing is getting done, you know, all along the way. And, you know, our, our understanding of exactly where that processing happens is still very primitive. I mean, the, the pioneering work that Bud has really done is tracing, mm. right? Tracing yeah. that spinal thalamic tract all the way to the insula because nobody realized it went there before. Yeah, right. I, the insula was just, I don't know what we thought the insula was. It just sort, yeah. of, sort of this, I, the, right. I, we would talk about it in pain because it would fire off in pain. Uh, and, and then right. we would, you know, but, but it, it fires off in strange ways with chronic pain, which is interesting. And even, mm-hmm. even without the sensory strip being activated, the insula, it right. goes off and people experience pain. And it, what, what I, the way I think of it is it's sort of the affective charge of pain. It's the affective component okay. of feeling. If, the, if that makes sense, or the the feeling component of, of our experiences, and it comes from our bodies, which is also that brings yeah, right, ahead, that please. brings me that goes us brings us back to that question about the the uh, enmeshment of emotion and um, yeah, yeah. cognition that yeah. we talked about before. Yeah. This is the reason why they can't be separated. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Because the affect, which is you know another word you could use is valence. Is it good or bad? That's at the very beginning. Even that amoeba that's going to its food or away from danger is that's that's the beginning of affect. So that's why you can't just say it, it's it's not like Plato's imaginary. You know, reason has to 
beat down emotion. That's just not the way it works. They've got to work together. Yeah, I totally agree with you. So I, I want to keep going a little further with this because I, have you spoken to, spoken to Stephen Porges and his polyvagal theory? I'm familiar with it, but I've never talked to him. You got You need to interview him. I, I'm going to recommend you do. He's a very interesting guy. He's, he's married to Sue Carter, who is uh, the the pra- oh, I know. Prairie Bowls, Prairie Bowls. <laughs> Sue Carter yeah, <laughs> at the uh, Kinsey Institute, and um, he's got some very interesting theoretical ways of thinking about this stuff. And his whole thing is th- this. Uh, I'm trying to reconcile, and, I, and I'm hoping you can help me reconcile his theory. That so much of feeling or interoception from the body is actually parasympathetic afferent inputs through the vagus into the midbrain, if that makes sense. Uh, when I, we were in medical school, we were taught about the vagus nerve. It's a large spinal nerve that comes out of the brain and goes right to the heart and slows the heart down. And that's about all we were taught. And maybe it <laughs> stimulates acid production by the stomach. And that, and that was it. And uh, it turns out that about 70-80% of that nerve is coming back to the brain, which I was never taught. And when I started thinking about it, I thought, oh, my God, there are all these gigantic nervous plexuses in our body, right? That the the Eastern, since you're an Eastern philosophy person, you'll appreciate they talk about them as uh, chakras. You know, they're actually parasympathetic nest of nerve in those regions, particularly in the pelvis and the abdomen and the chest, right? And we have no idea really. They must be processing units in some way, I guess. But do we really have any idea what those things are doing? Yeah, I don't think we do. And the thought that came to my mind as you were talking was the other thing we don't really understand very well yet is all the signals that are going the other way. You know, the I, I mean, the latest... Uh, the the feed forward signals right right. um you know we used to have this passive view of sensation where or take vision as the simplest example where you know okay an image just comes from the retina goes to the brain gets processed period that's what it is but now we know that there's all the there's more even more signals going the other way there's signals going you know from the visual cortex to the retina they're you know the latest theory is it's all about prediction Oh, well, and and, that's Lisa and that actually thing. makes sense. I mean, that's how a police officer can think someone's got a gun in their hand when they don't. Right. Right. right? They didn't lie. That is what they saw. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's Lisa also, Barrett's thing, right? She's it's, she really focuses on the brain being a predicting instrument. I didn't hear the name you said. Uh, Lisa Barrett. Isn't that her name? Uh, well, I, her, she's more interested in the construction of emotion. I don't think she's really into prediction theories. That's more, I think the, the most famous person is, um, Carl Friston. Okay. And then Andy Clark has written a lot about it. Um, he's a philosopher who writes neuroscience. It's Mm. very accessible. Um, if you've ever heard of the idea of the extended mind, the idea that, you know, like if you have been had dementia and you're using a notebook to keep track of things, mm-hmm. you could think almost think of that notebook as being part of your mind. Oh, look, I have an extended mind. I carry with me all the yep. time. Yeah. It's yeah. Cell phone. Remember how we used to call those heavy notebooks yeah. in our white coats, yeah. our peripheral brain. Yeah. yeah. But now we have those phones. The, the residents are really spoiled. I know. I'm kidding. <laughs> they sure are. Um, yeah. But, um, the the bottom line, Drew, is that there is, even though we know a lot, 
there's so much more that we oh, don't know. Oh my gosh, yes. And and that's that's <laughs> the area that kind of intrigues me is the, the the limits of where we are and sort of how we can sort of try to push that forward. And I I just have this sense that the the autonomic system may be the next great frontier because I mean, why is the sympathetic system organized the way it is with those silly little you know, nuclei along the spinal column. Why? Why is it like that? What's it doing, by the way? What are the processing units involved there? And what is going on in these giant things that the surgeons cut through and push aside from our parasympathetic nervous system? And what might that be doing to us in terms of our experience from our interoceptive material? Yeah. I mean, the most obvious answer is that that stuff's outside the central nervous system to, to shorten wiring lengths. So just to give a re- like a like a uh, reflexive. Think how big the spinal cord would be if we had to put all that stuff inside the spinal cord. So it's more of a reflexive thing, like like more for things like peristalsis and automatic automaticity and things like that, probably. Well, I, I don't. I'm not saying that we might not discover that, that those things are doing other things that we never imagined. But what I'm saying is, you ask why, and I'd say the most as a former engineer, the most obvious reason is because the. Sp- spinal cord would be big if all that stuff had to be inside the spinal cord. That makes sense. You know, having all those ganglia outside all the way up saves a lot of space. I, I, I get it. I get it. And, but the, 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 the phenomenon that interests me and I, you know, when I was early in training, it was located in the brain, but now I think it's located in the abdomen are things like gut feelings. Mm-hmm. I, I'm convinced that they are actually happening in the body and experienced in the brain. I think we, when I was in training, we put the whole thing in the brain. It's all just right. something your brain is constructed. But I, but I have a distinct sense that there's something happening there, and it has a receptive component to it that may not include the central nervous system. Maybe. Right. Well, the whole idea of the enteric nervous system, yeah, which is relatively new. I mean, that would be a topic that I have to say that I know nothing about, but uh, somebody's got to write a really good book about it and I'll be, I'll be there. You're in. <laughs> I'm not sure anybody really does. Though. I, I've been looking for a while. The closest yeah. thing I've found, Panskip, Panksep is, is close. Mm-hmm. He comes for me, comes close. And, and then um, Stephen Porges too. They, they both get mm-hmm. kind of close to it. I mean, it's interesting to me that in getting close, the mechanisms that they are famous for looking at are beneath the thalamus. In, in the more brainstemmy mm-hmm. areas, which is again, we have no idea really what's being processed there, do we? And we have that Panskeep is, is famous for his seeking system, right? That, that mm-hmm, was mm-hmm, one of his mm-hmm. famous findings is that we have this sort of gratifying, rewarding system of looking for things. That's how people get, you know, the people in sex addiction get very, uh, got very worked up about that system because they find the sex addicts seeking all the time. They're always hunting and seeking and. And very tight. Right. And it's not that, it's yeah. not winning the the prize that no, does it for it's us. Seeking, it's the, the seeking. Yeah. Interesting. Right? Yeah, that's one that's really easy to understand intuitively when you hear yeah. about it. Yeah. Yeah. What, yeah. Did anything else jump out when you talked to Panks up uh, when you were talking to him? Do you remember anything? That- well, the last time I talked to him, the thing that we were really focused on was was the possibility that animals have emotions and what does that mean for our responsibility toward them? Cause you remember he discovered that rats could giggle right. uh, at 50 kilohertz. So he can't really hear it. Um, 
but um you know he was becoming really concerned with with the ethical implications of those findings and so that's 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 what i that's what sticks in my mind about our last conversation i actually interviewed him three times and the last time was on my on my other show books and ideas which where i put things that just don't quite fit and that's what he was really you know you know worrying about was the ethical implications of of the emotions of animals. And did he, just out of curiosity, uh, there's emotions and then there's subjective experience of emotions, right? As right. we were talking, was he saying there was subjectivity to it or worrying that there well, might be that? If, if you are willing to accept the possibility that an animal can suffer, mm-hmm. then you have some ethical, right. Um, responsibility and whether being able to say I am suffering is the that's if you can't say that you're not suffering we have to figure that out that's that's kind of splitting hairs I mean you remember when you were in med school and they told you that babies didn't hurt when they were being circumcised and you knew that wasn't right Mm -hmm. but that's on this that's on this theory that there was no subjective I And and you know now we absolutely know that they that that's not true. But that's what we were told. We were told, oh, they're crying, but they're not feeling pain, you know. And and we knew in our gut that was wrong, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I didn't like. I did not like any of that. I, anything, anything. I, I I'm worried about the animal stuff too. I'm super worried. Right. About that. Well, that that that's 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 my point. I mean, I you know, a baby, newborn baby, probably can't say tell the difference between itself and others yet either but it still can suffer so lastly i wonder if you have a a theory of the difference between feelings and emotions i I get kind of screwed up on that (laughs) everybody has different ideas about it Uh, right sometimes go ahead that's a really tricky one because every author wants to pick their own definitions you know uh, it means we need to come up with some standard right and and so I don't think I would be contributing anything by making up my own definitions. I, I think it might help if we if we quit using those two words or put those two words together as the thing we experience and use affect yeah. for to describe the 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 part that's happening at the lower levels, the subcortical stuff that Panksepp discovered that 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 every animal probably experiences in some way the the stuff that's the you might think of it as the building block so when you're a baby and you feel um and 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 it's very closely related to body feelings like hunger okay because you don't know what hunger is either when you're a baby right but you learn i mean you cry you don't know that it's hunger but then you learn that that feels like hunger same way as um you know we you're angry. You learned that's called anger. Um, that's the part that I really agree with, um, with uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett about, because yeah, I mean, some, some languages have emotions. We don't even have in English. She um, leaves out though, the exchange that goes on, on a, a you know, sort of nonverbal level. Between right. I'm not saying especially. that I agree with her completely, yeah. but I'm saying that there are, there are parts that I do agree with, for example, the idea that you can read off facial expressions universally. I think that that, that is really shaky um, because you can, you can take a picture of 
Well, I think in one of her books, she has a great example of this, a picture of Serena Williams. And if you were to take that picture out of context, you would be convinced that she was mad. Mm -hmm. But what she was actually doing was going, yeah, I won. So context is so important to, um, to judging facial expressions. I, I worry that they're going to use these you know, facial expression things to teach um, machines to recognize emotions or try to teach autistic people how to recognize emotions using pictures without context because that's just not going to really work. Um, I think I lost track of what question you asked me to. We're talking about feelings and emotions. How, how do we differentiate? Yeah. Them? Well, I think it would help if we had – we used maybe the word affect because it yeah, doesn't have any uh, – preconceived notions with it whereas and then trying to distinguish between emotions and feelings and calling them two different things doesn't really help anything because nobody can ever agree which one means what you one author flips it one way and the other author flips it the other and they're both they both come down to it's something subjective that i feel and can describe to you once you get to the level of feelings and emotions as opposed to the affect and I, I find my, myself using the word affect all the time because it just it's more global. It more hits sort of more the target. Uh, but I, I kind of differentiate as feelings as, as you said, things I'm experiencing, typically sort of starting an interoceptive experiences of some type that may coalesce into a more comprehensive feeling I can put a name to. And if I express it, maybe then it's an emotion. Mm-hmm. How about that? Close. Yeah. <laughs> Just I effort. mean, I don't, I actually don't have a favorite way to do it because, yeah. I mean, every time I read Damasio, for example, I can't even keep his rules straight. <laughs> <laughs> Did you interview him? I don't remember if you got a chance to interview him. No, we never, you know, he actually agreed to come on the show. And a lot of people have the impression he's been on the show, even though he actually hasn't, because I've talked about his books several times, but never actually had him on. Um, but we've just never been able to hook up. He's a pretty busy guy. He's an interesting interview. He's all over the place, though. It'd be, it's hard. Right. To, I uh, actually have sort of moved to. I mean, it's it's neat to be able to interview somebody that's sort of famous, as, as famous being relative if you're a scientist. But I've sort of moved to pre- a preference for interviewing the people that people don't know about. People hmm. like Michael Graziano, who are doing really interesting work, and no one's heard of them, are actually my favorite interviews. Well. Listen, I I was very excited to talk to you. I love your podcast. I appreciate those interviews so much. I'm sort of working my way back way backwards through your greatest hits and things, and uh, it, it is uh, expanding my understanding of of a field that I thought I well, none of us really understand fully, I, and I'm aware <laughs> of that. But I thought I had a pretty good grasp on it. But you've expanded it quite a bit, and I really thank you for doing this podcast. And anyone who is interested. Please go check out Brain Science. There, it just is not a better podcast out there on this topic, and everyone has some interest in this. And I, and I think a, a good way to start, and Ginger, maybe you'll correct me, but some of the ones you do by yourself are, are sort of they're like little mini lectures, and they're sort of designed <laughs> to you know take people from through through a, an entire topic rather than interviews, which you kind of have to understand the topic a little bit before you can really grab onto what's being discussed. Is that fair enough? Um, it sort of depends on what topic you're yeah, interested in, you know, true. and, uh, I used to do a lot more solo episodes than I do now. It's because the show has 
sort of gotten more sophisticated over the years just because the con, you know, I couldn't do the same stuff over and over again. So if I get a new listener, I mean, when I first started out, I would say the first two years of the show is kind of like a, you know, mini degree in neuroscience. And then we've just kind of gone from, gone from there. Um, But I try to make every episode have something in it for everybody. You don't have to get every little nook, nook and cranny. I promise I'm going to tell you what the key ideas are at the yeah, end. Yeah, you like always you mentioned. do. <laughs> yeah, you always do. And, and, and uh, you can always go and read the book. That's, you know, it's funny. When I first started, I thought no one's going to read these books and I need to share this stuff. But people really do read the books and enjoy them. It's like they hear the scientists and they go, oh, okay, that's a normal person. Maybe I'll go read their book. Yeah. Yeah, some of them are pretty dense. Some of them are you got to be. Oh right, and I try to be clear about which ones are you could read this and which ones are really tough. Yeah, yeah, they're they're a little little bit of uh, (laughs) attentionality and intestinal fortitude. All all that will go a long way with some of this material. But Ginger, I I hope you'll let me talk to you again because there's I have a million other topics I could talk to you about, and we could even get into philosophy and the and the intersection with the philosophy and neuroscience but if if you'll permit me i'll bug you to come in here at some point in the future again and, and I, i'd love to come back and talk more about palliative care for maybe from scratch yeah i don't think yeah i know that's a subject people don't know enough about and i i feel like if they did they would be demanding that they have it you know most hospitals have don't even have real palliative care and it's because people don't know that they should be asking for it it's it's truly unbelievable, and I feel like we are training our younger physicians not to really understand where to use this and how palliative care. Yeah. I, I, yeah. It feels like they're, they zoom ahead with interventions that have uh, that are just purposeless. I mean, you're not doing anything for the patients. You're, you're just responding to really just the demands of the moment and the medical legal implications of not doing something as opposed to thinking about what's good for the patient. Yeah. At um, the medical school where I teach, the residents do a two-week rotation with us, which Good. is just not enough. Is that just so it's better me- than nothing. Is that just the medicine uh, residents? Internal medicine yeah. Med- residents, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, the surgeons, you know, they're just – they just need to read a tool go one day. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I noticed early on I, – so I did general <laughs> medicine for a long time, and I thought, oh, when everyone else is done, then I get them back. You know what I mean? When they when there's no more to be done, the, they just wash their hands of the patient, and the process of whatever comes next is left to the general internist, and and that's the dying process typically, uh, or the the surgeons and the and the specialists subspecialists keep going and just do too much, and it's that's where the suffering kicks in. Yeah. So, well, listen, we I thank you uh, again. The website is brainsciencepodcast.com. dot uh, com. That's the the podcast website and Dr. Campbell's website is virginiacampbellmd.com. And uh, we'll come back. We'll talk about paleo care, okay? Okay, sounds great. It. Thanks. Thank you so much. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. 
services only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Thank you.